Welcome to Healthcare Mixtape, where we're curating the ultimate playlist of healthcare content that you may have missed the first time. Here we share bonus episodes and greatest hits from some of our favorite shows, as well as exclusive interviews with industry insiders, all focused on healthcare changemakers and the disruption of the now. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. I'm Jared Johnson, your playlist curator, and it's time to mix it up. All right, we're continuing with our Greatest Hits playlist, which is where we're replaying some of the top episodes from Healthcare Wrap and other podcasts. Our episode today is titled, Why is Consumer First Design So Hard? It originally aired in August 2021, and it was one of the most popular episodes of the Healthcare Wrap last year. In it, Zane Ismail and I issued a challenge to the industry. We talked about why it's been so hard historically to create consumer-first healthcare services and experiences. We dove deep into the patriarchal origins of traditional medicine and looked at how to create an internal culture of innovation to gain consensus for new ideas. A lot of these challenges still hold true, so we wanted to replay this one and keep the discussion alive in the industry. Check it out. Let the mix begin. The flow, the flow, the flow. Hey, Zane, uh, good for you to be back. How are you doing? Doing good, Jared. Um, excited about the future. We're in the dog days of this pandemic, starting to feel a little bit normal, even though the Delta variant's ravaging in some areas. But I'm excited to get back to whatever our way of normal is or was or will be. As always, agreed with that wholeheartedly. And Zane, I know last time we gave a little bit of a tease. I'm wondering if one of the reasons why you're excited about the future is a recent movie you made. Do we do we want to get into that? We don't have to get yeah. into that. No, yeah, let me share with our listeners. So I I don't know if I was ever explicit with our listeners, but you know, you know, when I first started co-hosting with you, Jared, I worked for Henry Ford Health System. That was my day job. And uh, recently within the last month, I've decided to to leave everything that I know and my family there at Henry Ford. And um, I'm now going to be working for Avia Innovation, which is a digital health sort of consultancy and advisory service based out of Chicago. And so really I'll be working at the national level with a bunch of of our clients, probably some of our listeners here to really manifest some of the work that we actually talk about here on the podcast. So really excited about that. Um, Nervous about getting out of like a hospital system. It's what I know. I've worked in provider systems, both in Canada and the United States. And so now to jump into a professional service scares me a little, but, um, you know, I guess I'll just call you Jared when I have questions. You can help me through it. Yes. Anytime you've just made it and made an, a notable impact at a notable health system. So I'd say, uh, you, you can tackle anything. So, uh, I'm excited to see where things go with you and, and this, and this was a fantastic move. You'll always have the experience and the successes you had at Henry Ford. You'll always bring, be able to bring those with you and, and your family that you had there. So that's the great part about it is that, yeah. uh, healthcare tends to be a, a small family. Amen. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And thank you for being a part of my journey. And one more, I guess, like personal change is, I think, again, most of our listeners know I was making the commute between Windsor and Detroit every day to come and work for Henry Ford at about about a thousand Canadians that work for that hospital system since it's literally like two miles from the Canadian border. And a lot of our nurses come from there. But me being a dual citizen, I've decided to relocate to the United States. So now I'm a true Detroiter. I'm 
recording this podcast from Midtown Detroit. And so I'm no longer in Windsor, Ontario, that made the move here in the United States. And so two big moves in my life in the last couple of weeks. You know what they say, go big or go home. So that's right. <laughs> that's right. There you go. There yeah. you go. Well, I'm not even going to try to compete with that. I will simply share one thing that has recently come across my life that is really interesting. I'm holding a book right now. It's called Health Design Thinking. And you may or may not be familiar with this book. It's by Dr. Bon Koo and Ellen Lupton. And it came out in 2020. I understand there's a new version coming out in 2022, uh, which is exciting, but it's called Health Design Thinking. And it's it's very interesting. So Dr. Koo, he's uh, the founder of the Innovative uh, Health Design Lab at Thomas Jefferson University. So as a clinician himself and as a thorough evangelist of design thinking, specifically in healthcare settings. It's going to take me a while to get through it because it is jam-packed, but it is one of those potential game-changer books where it's just opening my eyes to what's possible. And uh, yeah, highly recommend already. Awesome. Fantastic. I'll have to read it myself. You know, we should, um, maybe for some of our next episodes here, get on like the same reading schedule. (laughs) Oh, seriously. That would be cool. To totally do that. Maybe with some of our listeners as well. Yes, totally down for that. Man, we are, we're just throwing value out there left and right here. So let, let's see if we can keep that going, that momentum. We're going to discuss a question today that I think has some ramifications in a good way. I think when we talk so much about creating the healthcare that consumers want, what we want to talk about today is why is that so hard? And why haven't we seen it until recently? Why isn't this part of the tradition and long history of medicine and healthcare. And I can give my thought or my take on maybe where, why it was so hard, at least initially. And we're talking centuries ago, we're talking up until recent years, I would say, we are still learning how medicine 1.0 and medicine 2.0, if you will, kind of come into play where the pre-EHR days, I'll just lump them all together. And there are so many inter-period segments during that time where you are talking about centuries of medicine and education and learning and training. But a lot of it, from what I understand, did come from such a patriarchal order Sure. That there was not, this comes back to research and interviews I, I did when, when part of uh, the, the book I wrote called Connect the Docs. The second half of that, that book was going to be on a totally different topic. And I changed direction in that book because I started talking to so many people. We were originally talking about digital health tools and we ended up talking so much about how to empower patients and it changed my mindset. And so mm-hmm. it actually changed the trajectory of the theme of that book, if you will. And long story short, that need and that ability to empower patients that ultimately helps them improve their health and helps you improve, you know, if you're a clinician, helps you improve your practice of medicine, that was not a part of medicine. So long story short, those are just overarching systemic pieces of this puzzle that we are still trying to better understand and, and overcome in the right ways. But those are definitely blocks to producing creating healthcare products and experiences that people actually want, because that by default means you're designing with the consumer in mind. And that has definitely not historically been the case. Oh, I completely agree. And what I'd tack on to that is, you know, I, you know, it's sort of the paternalism that exists in healthcare that more or less says that, you know, us as the institution or the physician or the nurse, we know better than our consumers. And I think we certainly do when it comes to, I call it like super clinical issues, but what health systems or what we have not learned as you know healthcare people is you know more on the consumer side, the marketing side, 
you know, certainly our consumers have, have a lot of insights that they can share with us that we can build upon. And the other thing I'd add to that and touch upon connects back with what we talked about in episode two is you know, really most hospital systems were either founded you know, in either the military or the church when you think about their origin stories. And so both of those institutions, the military and religious church institutions, you know, have very hierarchical, you know, do as we say type of culture, which manifests into healthcare because, you know, that's where they draw their origin from, which then has this impact on call it the innovation cycle within organizations because they don't necessarily have, you know, the freedoms or the org structures that support some of the methodologies and tools that we've been talking about, be it lean startup design thinking, human-centered design, business model canvases, and things like that. And so it's it's definitely, to your point, something that's systemic and ingrained in the culture. Agreed. Okay, so culture. So let's let's have that be our pivot point here in, in the conversation, sure. because I think when we start talking about how do we make it not so hard to create healthcare that people actually want, culture is one of the biggest drivers, in my opinion. It's not tech. And I don't right. even know if it's leadership so much. I, I think leadership is part of the puzzle. I don't think there are many leaders out there who are actively discouraging us from creating better products and services, if you will. So I don't know if it's if it's manifest in that way, but I do think leadership drives the culture and culture does start from the top. And so when I'm talking about the culture of inviting innovation, especially when we're talking about larger organizations, the larger the organization, the more pockets of innovation you're going to have. You're going to have a team or an individual in certain areas or certain teams who are leading and they, they are more, okay, so they're less risk averse. They're sure. more willing to try things. They do have an innovative mindset. They have some of these tools in the tool set that we've been talking about for, for this entire season of lean startup methodology and agile and, and uh, human-centered design. And they're, they're bringing those in. So there are pockets of this happening in, I'd say, in just about every organization, regardless of what leadership is doing. It's where that culture allows that innovation to go that is the question for me because you could have those innovators if you will in their little pockets and if they feel like the lone wolf if the reaction to what they're doing is feels like a threat to other people in the organization if it's not communicated properly if they're just trying to be an evangelist to that thing they understand the value of an innovation of an advancement an evolution of whatever you're doing and they're not thinking about how do I gain consensus for this idea, then quite often that's what extinguishes new sparks in my mind. I, I, I don't know. What, what's your take on, on culture and its role in everything? No, yeah. I So when you talk that way, it reminds me of a, a framework I learned through Vanderbilt University. I ended up taking a Coursera course, which I love Coursera, by the way, uh, called Leading Innovation, Leading Strategic Innovation in Organizations. And more or less, the model is a pretty simple one. They call it the constraints model. Uh, founded by Dr. David Owens. And basically what he says is that in order for innovation to be successful, there's a number of constraints, you know, know, psychological issues, institutional issues, technology, politics, you know, almost like a pestle or a Porter Spice Forces model of constraints that need to be satisfied for in order for that innovation to move forward. And one of the biggest ones, and I believe we've talked about on this show that people fail to address is honestly exactly what you just said, which is to map out when you're coming up with a new solution and say, who might this solution not only disrupt in the market, which we're happy to chat 
ad nauseum and tell the world we're about to disrupt healthcare. But what's probably more important, especially if you're innovating within a big institution, is thinking about who within my own institution am I about to disrupt, or let me just say piss off by creating this new product and service. It may make them, it may make their product or service irrelevant. It may make them make their product or service, you know, less important or frankly, just completely replace it, right? And so it's that internal work that needs to be done um, in order to successfully evangelize um, whatever it is that you're trying to do. And really the best practice there is to actually pull in those people you're going to disrupt and make them part of the solution so that really your innovation is their new version of themselves, so to speak. And so that's definitely one thing um, that folks need to be starting to think about as they're you know, leading their own digital innovation process and product design within their healthcare institution. In terms of how do we how do we leverage that that thought and that process and that mindset to make it a little easier to create healthcare products? And any any other thoughts on that in terms of like how maybe a starting point for uh, for organizations who aren't quite there yet? And so I think one thing, and this is a bit of a you know, nebulous concept, but I think one of the biggest things, and this gets into you know who to disrupt is is really working with your HR leadership and and leaders around creating psychological safety within organization, which I know is a bit of a buzzword right now. But really that's sort of the, you know, it's a term that ultimately is coined to mean we need to create environments where we work, where people are feel free and empowered to speak up, not only for clinical safety, which obviously we do with ours, but speak up with new ideas and probably more importantly, and I know you talk about this all the time, Jared, is to speak up and say, why are we doing it this way? I mean, organizations where that's not possible, where you feel you might feel like you can't speak up, you'd be attacked, you might get fired, you might get blacklisted, you know, you'd get your email turned off and told you don't work here anymore. In organizations that have that culture where there's no psychological safety, it's nearly impossible for them to innovate, you know, anything spectacular um, because you, by definition, can't be disrupted, right? And so that would be one thing, which is not, it's not really a super tactical recommendation because there's a lot in there, but it's certainly something that your HR teams definitely need to be thinking about. And then to continue to manifest that is, you know, working with your performance management system, your talent review process, and your leadership development process, where you're starting to incorporate, you know, dimensions of innovation, ideation, new product design, things like that into into the criteria of what it means to actually be a leader within that institution or develop or further develop your career within that institution. For example, at least at the institutions I'm familiar with that I work for, there is no extra points or bonus given to people who come up with new ideas. Um, there might be you know, a good you know, rev share and an intellectual property policy, but there isn't really, it's not on many people's list key performance indicators to actually be innovative, like come up with something new, you know, bring new value to patients, make more money for the health plan, so on and so forth. And so getting down to those tactics within your HR and org design, talent design, comp function, um, I think will do wonders to start creating that environment where innovation can flourish and ultimately we can catalyze you know, the healthcare that people actually want to receive. Ooh, bonus points for new ideas. I, I'm yeah. really, really latching onto that that thought because, well, I, yeah, you know, I, I can see a lot of benefits to it. You know, I'll be super transparent. So one company I worked for, I used some of our own methods, business model canvas and design, and came up with a new product. 
and it sold it. Actually, I sold the product before it was even finished. And we did a we did a um, Wizard of Oz MVP, and so we faked it for our first customer. They had no idea, but they paid for it. And so I took that to my boss and I said, "Hey, boss, like it's been a great year. By the way, developed this product. Didn't even tell you that I did it. It made this amount of money. Can I get a raise?" <laughs> Right, I mean, I'm just being real. That's what I really did, and the answer was, "Hey, no, like we don't have. It's not that I don't want to give you a raise, but I talked to HR, and like we don't have a framework to handle what you just did. Like, thank you for what you did. Thank you for creating that, but it's not, it's not within the policy or you know the raise structure or the criteria of getting a raise for that. And and my boss was apologetic. She said, "You should, but we can't." And so what I ended up getting was like a bonus, which I appreciate, like just different than a raise. But it just goes to show that a lot of our traditional organizations, and maybe this is something we need to talk to Kelly Gill about, um, who's a recruiter, mm-hmm. aren't set up well to actually incentivize innovation, new product creation, ideation, and, and really like business development and sales. So just an example there. That's a fascinating example. I, th- I think uh, I'm not going to get more real than we get. Right. It's the truth. And, and getting, unfortunately, we have to get down to those tactics. Because again, you know, bringing Kelly Gill into this, who's, you know, that fantastic recruiter that we spoke to, was it this year or last, at this last season? And he talked about how, you know, all these disruptors in healthcare are able to hire and recruit because they do have, you know, structures that allow to pay people unfairly when they when they move mountains, right? Where in traditional hospital systems, we don't do that. And good people, good innovators, as much as people are driven by mission and I am and you are, but at some point, if we learn that we can make 10X more money doing, you know, innovating down the street, as opposed to here, we're probably going to entertain that opportunity, I would think, right? So something to look into. No, I couldn't agree more. I think versus having the mindset of what can I do to make sure I don't lose my job? Yeah. You know, like that mentality, that defensive mentality, which is very real. I know a lot of our listeners are going to relate to that because that is how how you feel right now. And that's just a reality of certain types of organizations we are in. And I, I think that even relates to as one other obstacle, I, I think, in terms of what has kept it so hard to create the right types of healthcare. And that's been an understanding of new technology. So not the yeah. tech itself. It's how quickly can we understand it? And yep. gain enough insights and, and train and test it and and wow. spread that knowledge. Because I, what I see is that you'll have this term that I, I credit uh, Dave Winicky at PK Global for uh, first making me, me aware of this term, silos of excellence. So we're getting experts really deep in certain topics and certain platforms, and especially with new tech, because you're, you're finding somebody who on your marketing team needs to be really, really deep understanding a CRM or a a marketing automation platform, for instance, or a consumer data platform. And so you get people who are really good at that, but then they are in a silo. And so that expertise, the understanding of how to use that new tech, there's an entire process and a culture that needs to be built around it to transfer that and expand the knowledge of it. And this is most certainly a challenge, especially in the bigger organizations you get. And what's useful is to go into that eyes wide open, knowing that people are going to see new tech as kind of the shiny object and other people who may not have the background in it are going to want to be part of a team. They're willing to figure it out, but they don't know where to start or they just don't have 
all in technical expertise they, they quite need to really be the quote unquote expert in it. Okay. And I think there, there's pluses and minuses for that. But I also think this is one of the easier solutions here, which I think is to decentralize the expertise. Yes. Meaning with technical and digital, instead of saying, here's our team and that's all they do. And we have to run everything by them. And they're the experts. We're going, we're getting right back to that thought of, of paternalistic uh, culture and having to go get permission or get trained by one certain team versus if you make knowledge transfer a priority, especially when it comes to tech and digital, then you're going to have fewer of those issues. And this is very much a, not a tech issue. It's a people trying to understand tech issue. And so that is, I think, one of the easier ways we can make some progress here is start to say, great, bring on the talent who are experts and go really deep. But part of their mission and part of how they are recognized and valued in the organization should be how do they transfer that knowledge and bring it to other people? Because one of the great parts, but practically every position I've had so far has been sharing enough training in a piece of new tech or a new platform with people who didn't have background in it and then see them light up and say, oh, wait, like finally understand what the application of it is. Oh, for me in my area, now I know how I can use that tech. So what do you think about this? And that ideation process is one of my favorite parts of being involved in new tech. So yeah, I think it's one of the, the lower hanging fruit here. I agree. And, and part of that connects back to psychological safety, where we're a mature enough of an organization to recognize that people are not necessarily just their job description. And so they can ebb and flow between different areas of expertise. And that's okay. You know, by my marketing, if you know, if I'm you know the chief information officer at leading IT. I do not feel threatened if the chief marketing officer also knows something about IT and is coming to me with ideas and recommendations and vice versa. And really that hits on what you talk about all the time, which is breaking down the silo mentality in healthcare. And so certainly we can all focus and be responsible and accountable for our domains, but also be mature enough to recognize that I'm not the only expert when it comes to this. And let me humble myself to invite other people into the party to help me co-create and ideate and come up with the best solutions based on our collective insights. I'm giving you a, a virtual 100 emoji right now. Yeah. We can build something better together than any of us can on our own. And we just need to plaster that across our foreheads uh, every single day. That's how we're going to create a healthcare of tomorrow. That's how we're going to evolve and improve and, and get us closer to the healthcare that people actually want. Uh, Zane, any final thoughts on this topic? You know, all I'll say is that, you know, in my last, you know, three or four years of career work, I just realized how important like this culture piece is that we're talking about. And it's not an easy problem to solve. So I don't want to make any representations, but I realize now it's so fundamental. Like you can have great tech, you can have great smart people, you can have all the great tools that we talk about, but until you, Till you really start to get intentional with your human resource team and you know, obviously the CEO as well, and say, hey, we want innovation, not just to be you know, a thing that we say, but actually embedded into our culture and make some of those tactical changes that we talked about around comp and things like that. Until you start to do that, I, you shouldn't expect there to be any big, big innovative breakthroughs or changes in the organization until that's done. Because to me, that's just, I realize now that's just really the foundation and there's no getting around it in my opinion. Fantastic. Zane, uh, giving us a ton of value as always here. 
thanks so much again. Thanks for joining us. Uh, stay safe, stay well, and uh, we'll speak to you again here soon. All right. Talk soon. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.